Ah, oh, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we got, uh, uh, we'll wrap up our thoughts on the BRICS summit. We'll do that. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the, the coup in Gabon, uh, another coup in Africa. And then we'll end off talking about the uh, the new thing, which is China's economy slowing down. Uh, we'll get into that. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So, let me just adjust my microphone right here. There we go. So, we have Hurricane Idalia ripping through Florida. Now, so far, only three deaths have been confirmed, but hurricane season is not over just yet. So, stay safe and stay well. We have Russia currently in talks with North Korea for joint naval drills, including China. Uh, and if you remember a while back, that this has sort of been a trend going on where they've been doing naval drills closer and closer to American territory. Not necessarily like off the coast of California, but off the Aleutian Islands, they just did one. There was a, a drill a while back around Hawaii. So there's a possibility that these drills might be, you know, up towards the Aleutian Islands or towards Hawaii or maybe even Guam, potentially, potentially. Uh, I'm thinking of places where the North Koreans can reach, you know, fairly easily, because if it's going to include North Korea, uh, then it's got to be a place where the North Korean Navy can go. So that might be something to look out for. That might be something that pops up in the next few weeks or months whenever this drill comes about. Expect a war scare. Expect some more manufacturing of consent for war with North Korea. Again, North Korea is on deck, just like I, I thought it would be with, when that um, soldier defected across the border to North Korea. And I'm like, hmm, why is this all over the news right now? Uh, and and then all of a sudden it's, oh, North Korea is firing missiles. Oh, North Korea is doing this. And, and now here we go with this joint naval drill. The war drums are beating for North Korea, uh, just like I thought that they would. Uh, now, to be fair, I thought that the defection would be used as sort of the the pretense for being uh beating the war drums but if it is it's been it's on a low key for uh, a low key way because they really haven't been brought that guy up again but yeah I, I knew like once he crossed i'm like oh well we have north korea in the news cycle again so now it's just going to be all about how north korea is so dangerous and evil the united states they have these nuclear weapons they're they're a rogue state and blah 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 blah, because that's all these people have more war, and quite frankly, they would love for people to not be looking at Ukraine right now. Uh, what happened to the offensive? Gone. What happened to all those tanks and armored vehicles we get to send them? Gone. The Ukrainians are about to get a very welcome reprieve from their own failure, which is the fall and the winter, the rainy season in the snow. But after that, I think the backbreaker offensive comes. And I'm not entirely sure what the Ukrainians are going to have to stop it. Because at that point, I don't imagine the Russians are going to hold back. I imagine that the whole, we're going to open up new axes of attack in the near future. I think that's when that's going to come. And we'll probably see a three-pronged attack into Ukraine rather than the... Um, 
well, rather than what we have now, where the Russians are coming in from one angle, which is sort of the south, the southeast of Ukraine, or even in the beginning of the war, where they came in from the southeast and the north, two prong. I think we're going to see three prongs. Now, that's just personal speculation, but the war is grinding down and it's coming to a close. And it's coming to a close because the Ukrainians aren't going to be able to fight it for too much longer. And the Russians aren't going to be too keen on dragging it out for too much longer because it's coming with a lot of um, it's coming with a lot of consequences and sort of baggage that the Russians don't feel like dealing with. They'll take their time, mind you. They're not necessarily in a rush, but they're not going to take unnecessary amounts of time if the enemy is weak and Ukraine is getting weak. The arms shipments coming in from NATO and United States are dwindling because we don't have anything left to give them. So at a certain moment in time, there will come the backbreaker offensive. And it will break the back of the Ukrainian military, and we will see a rapid defeat. This entire this stalemate will be broken by the great cavalry charge, so to speak. And you'll see the Ukrainian line just collapse from multiple fronts. It'll be a debacle. And the Russians might move incredibly quickly when that comes. No. I'm, I'm not sure if they will or if they'll be slow and methodical about it and just be content with the inevitability of their victory or if they'll go for the lightning assault. I don't know. No one knows. But we know it's coming. We know it's coming. But for the time being, the Ukrainians have the fall and the winter to sort of catch their breath before the end. And that's what we're looking at. More war, which is why our government needs to distract us from that war. And they're going to try to postpone the Ukraine war, uh, either get it frozen so they don't have to deal with the debacle of a complete collapse in Ukraine, or they're going to try to delay it until after the election, like the boys over at the Duran are speculating. So be on the lookout for that. We have Japan, in other news, now dumping nuclear waste from the Fukushima disaster into the ocean. And scientists claim it's safe. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Whatever you say, whatever you say. Uh, how about you dump it into your own waters? You know. As a matter of fact, don't dump it at all. <laughs> don't dump it at all. Bury it. Why do you need to dump it in the ocean? Bury it. Like, what are you doing this for? It's gonna poison people. It's, what is it with these people and nuclear waste? What is it with these people and nuclear? Like, <clears throat> I get that Japan isn't as much of a vassal as Ukraine is. But considering who their overlords are, which is the United States and Britain, what is the obsession with all this nuclear waste and nuclear poisoning? You have you have the, them dumping nuclear waste into the ocean right now. This is Japan. But then on the other side of the world, in Ukraine, you have them depleted uranium shells. You have them firing shells at nuclear power plants the one in Zaporozhye, the one in Kherson. When Russia first came in, the Ukrainians were trying to bomb Chernobyl. All this, they sent drone attacks on Angles Air Base, where the Russians keep their nuclear warheads. Like, and of course, when the, their warehouse, the Ukrainian uh, sort of a- ammunition depot, got blown up by a Russian missile, and it was housing depleted uranium. Now all those people living in that area are going to be poisoned. And for what? What is the obsession? by the overlords 
with nuclear poison. What is the obsession? I don't get it. Do they? Well, I say I don't get it. They're anti-humanists. But it just continues to surprise me how all in they are on killing people with nuclear poison instead of using nuclear power to bring us into the 21st century the right way. It's crazy to think about. Uh, we have that. We'll, we'll see how well that goes. And I, I have a feeling it's just going to go so unbelievably well for the Japanese and everyone else living in the area that they're all going to start dumping their nuclear waste into the ocean because the, the Japanese is just going to set such a great example. I'm lying, but, <laughs> but we're going to continue. We have India now launching a mission to the sun. Like, let's go, India. This is what we like to see. More space, more missions. And I, I said this on last episode. Because that lunar mission they did, the price was the price tag was $75 million with an M. $75 million. That means they can do, they had the potential to do back-to-back missions, perhaps even simultaneous missions. And here we are, right here. They just landed on the moon, and now here they are doing a mission to the sun. Back-to-back mission. This is what we want. This is what we like to see. Keep it up, India. Let's go. It's all about uh, the Indians. Let's go, Indians. Perhaps the rest of us will catch up someday. But you know, I guess we're just we're just not on India's level. You know, we're just not there. We'll get there someday. <laughs> but for the time being, India can into space, and that's again, that's exactly what we like to see. Now, me personally. I would like to see more activity on the moon. You already know my stance on that. But going to the sun is cool. It's cool too, you know. But uh, yeah, we have the Sudanese military launching airstrikes on militia positions in Khartoum, the capital city of the country. Now, 20 civilians uh, are claimed to have been killed in this attack. The country's health ministry, uh, meanwhile, puts the total number of deaths from the, the civil war at 1,100 people. So it's it's likely going to be a little more than that because how exactly are they going to be able to keep track of all the deaths in the middle of a war zone? So you could probably revise that up by one or 200. But so far, it, uh, again, it's safe to say that Sudan is in a civil war. It's it's more than just a rebellion. It's more than just a, a mutiny or an attempted coup. This is a straight up civil war, the army fighting the militias. And so far... The army has air power on its side, and they're using it uh, wherever they can. But will it win them the war? That's the big question. Will it win them the war? We'll see. I have a sneaking suspicion that we'll find uh, the U.S. involved on the side of the militias. Sneaking suspicion. Don't know why. Don't know why. I just had that feeling, you know, that, that gut feeling that, you know, it's a conflict somewhere that no one really cares about. Well, no one in this country, anyway. Uh, we're probably going to find American money and American weapons there. And it's going to be, oh, no, they, they got there by the black market. Oh, speaking of which, the, the war in Ukraine, the, the black market situation. Remember how javelins and stingers ended up in the hands of randoms around the world who had nothing to do with Ukraine? I wonder where all of our equipment is really going. I wonder why we can't have an audit. It couldn't be that it's ending up in the hands of unsavory peoples in conflict scenarios around the world, like, I don't know, a civil war here or a civil war there. Something to think about. Something to think about. I would not be surprised if all of a sudden 
the rapid support forces, that's the militia forces, started shooting at the government uh, air force with American-made stingers. The stingers are the anti-air, I believe. The, the, I almost said the javelins, but I'm pretty sure the javelins are the anti-armored vehicle, the anti-vehicle. So I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happens and then it becomes a big story. So that's the consequence of Lend-Lease and just handing out weapons like candy with no accountability and no trace or trail, paper trail. We have Ukraine and its offensive trying to take Melitopol. They're not going to get there, but there's a, a lot of talk about them doing it. Why? Again, it's distraction. Talk about the things that Ukraine... We're talking about Ukraine's goals. We're not talking about Ukraine's advances. We're not talking about battlefield victories. We're talking about their goals. And that's all we've been talking about for the past few months. The Ukraine wants to do this. Ukraine wants to do an offensive. Where the, and they want to take back Zaporizhia. They want to take back Crimea. They want to get back to Mariupol. They want to do a lot of things. But they can never do them. And that's the part that just gets conveniently glossed over. Now, I'm sure most of you have, you know, caught on to that trend, but I think it's a very important thing to point out. We're talking all the news about Ukraine when it talks about, you know, good news for Ukraine and, and how they're doing this and how they're doing that. It's about their ambitions, but it's never about gains. Always ambitions, always intentions, but never gains. And then they just gloss over the losses. And the losses are huge for the, the minuscule gains that they've gotten. This war can't, it, it's unsustainable. It can't go on. And at a certain point, I think sometime next year, we will see it brought to a swift conclusion. Relatively swift, you know. Uh, perhaps think of the time frame of the Taliban when they started going on their, their summer offensive in 2021 right after we were supposed to be, you know, be gone in May of 2021. And we broke that agreement because Biden decided we're just going to stay for another four months. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I think a time frame like that is going to be something that we see, especially considering that this offensive didn't happen until the summer. So we can expect next spring or summer, maybe the Russians go early, maybe they go later. We can expect a major offensive. This war is not going to last too much longer. So yeah, that's coming up. Then we have Turkish and Russian ministers meeting to discuss the revival of the grain deal. And if you remember, this is the deal where Russia was going to leave Ukraine's grain shipments alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were going to leave the grain shipments alone so that Ukraine could export its grain to the rest of the world, even though they were at war with Russia. But one of the stipulations of that was that the West had to stop sanctioning Russian agriculture, which they didn't do. And then they shipped weapons along the grain routes, which they weren't supposed to do as well. And long story short, the Russians pulled out of the deal. And now the Ukraine's Black Sea ports are uh, basically under blockade now. Turkey wants to revive the deal. The Russians say... We'll come back to the deal if the West honors its obligations. In the meantime, they're offering up grain to the Turks for the Turks to resale or to consume as they see fit. Essentially, essentially buying off the Turks once again with food instead of fuel this time. 
like bit by bit, Turkey is just being slowly but surely drawn out of our sphere of influence and closer to the Russian sphere of influence. Uh, I say that they are in Russia's sphere of influence, but then again, Turkey is very much an independent actor in spite of that. So I, I hesitate to say that in sort of a definitive way, but you get what I mean. They're more, moving more towards the Russians than towards the United States or Europe because the Russians are the ones offering them deals. Gas Hub, Turk Stream, the grain deal, and, and the Turks again, they're going to be one of the biggest winners of this war because they the the relevance of Turkey has just been elevated to these mag these magnificent proportions. Like you'll you'll see videos talking about how Poland is the new center in Europe. They're they're going to be the new arsenal in Eastern Europe, and how Poland's a rising military power in in, in Europe, and all, all this hype for a country that isn't really doing all that much. <laughs> Meanwhile, Turkey has just been extracting concession after concession after concession, maxing out its benefit from both angles. From both angles, it extorted the Swedes for it extorted Sweden and Finland for concessions on the Kurds to give them NATO membership. Extorted them straight up extortion. Then and before that, actually, I say then before that, it was well, we're going to give drones to Ukraine. They gave drones to Ukraine, sold to Ukraine. Not, not none of this lend-lease trash sold to Ukraine. They made money off of that. That they they got the gas hub deal with Russia. They they were the mediation. They they, I am stuttering. Turkey was where the mediation for the peace deals between Ukraine and Russia were originally handled. Turkey was the mediator. They were the middleman. Massive relevance. Turkey is the key player in the grain deal because the grain, in order to get out of the Black Sea, has to go through Turkey. Which means that the Turks, and one of the things about the grain deal was that Turkey would come on and inspect ships to make sure that there were no weapons on board. Uh, well, I, uh, I say no weapons. Um that was more of a, the West isn't allowed to bring weapons along the grain routes. The, the Turks were actually supposed to come in to make sure the Russians weren't selling Ukrainian grain and, you know, that they were only selling Russian grain and, you know, keep the two things separate and keep the Russians from essentially profiteering off of stolen grain. But what that did in effect was allow the Turks to nationalize the straits. Because if they can board your ship to inspect it when they want, even though it's under sort of contained... Uh, under a, a contained rule where they, they can only do it for a specific purpose now, nothing's stopping that from expanding later on. The precedent has now been set that the Turks are allowed to do this. They've, they've gotten the nationalization of the Straits. They've gotten concessions on providing arms and support for the Kurds out of Sweden and Finland. They've gotten a gas hub deal from Russia. They, they now have a grain a proposal from Russia. They've gotten as much as they're gonna get, and they're still getting more. They they and they were a mediator. All of this from a conflict that they're not even fighting. And now we're talking about the grain deal. 
Now, Turkey wants to go back to the Grand Deal because, of course, they, it gives them relevance and power. Russia says no, but hey, we'll give you grain on the back end because we know that the West isn't going to honor its obligations. And honoring obligations or the failure to do so is part of the reason the war even happened. Remember Minsk too. Russia was the only one to honor its obligations. And then they pulled out, and then we got the war in Ukraine today. So here we go again, where we have a deal. One side honors it, the other side doesn't, the other side being us. And then the side that was honoring the deal, Russia, pulls out of the deal, and now everyone's complaining. It's like, well, where was all this complaining when it was your turn to honor your end of the deal? But I'll digress. We have history repeating itself and rhyming as well. But that's what's going on here in Turkey getting massive concessions for, again, a war they're not fighting. And then we have, uh, well, actually, no, that that's just about it for the rapid fire news. I, I didn't I didn't realize that I had already mouthed off the other end of my notes here for the Russian grain deal. I just, I guess I had it all up in my noggin the entire time. But that's the rapid fire news. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. All right, so let's get into the meat of this episode, and we'll start by uh, talking about the BRICS. We'll conclude our thoughts on the BRICS Summit as the BRICS Summit comes to a conclusion. And I think I've covered all the the major important facts about it, although I will criticize myself because last week when we were talking about the the big BRICS Summit, uh, I emphasized the interplay between BRICS and America and how the two were interconnected in ways both negative but also positive and i thought the the positive sort of outweighed the negative or at least the potential positive did but i think i went a little overboard and i i kept going on tangents about america when i was supposed to be talking about the BRICS summit so there's a, a criticism on my end i do believe i covered the major facts of the summit but it was so spread out because i'd i'd do like one one thing and then i'd go on a tangent about america so just listening to myself there it's like uh well I've diluted the value of the segment by going off topic a little, just a little too much, you know, uh, but you know me, I love my tangents, but uh, I, I can't help it. I can't help it. Forgive me. I really like America. And I really do believe that what's happening around the world, as emphasized by the BRICS summit, is not some danger to America or to anyone else for that matter. I really do believe that this is a positive, a very positive once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. And while I don't think America needs to necessarily join the BRICS, I just can't help but think of the immense potential in terms of trade, in terms of deals and development and markets and mutually beneficial agreements and uh, arrangements that could be brokered between us and not just the BRICS, but the broader multipolar world in general. I see the emergence of this new multipolar world as overtly beneficial to the United States. That's the way I see it. And I, I I kept going off on tangents about it. And I really do believe it. But I'll try to stay on topic. But yeah, with, with the BRICS coming to a close, we can confirm, we can confirm that they are working on that, that currency, the trade settlement currency, which will be backed by gold. And I did bring up how the fact that there's so many commodities producers are a part of BRICS now, their ability to back the currency themselves instead of relying on some sort of outside power to provide the gold or or whatever other commodity ends up being put into that. Because we, we don't know. 
we don't know it it could be gold it could be oil they they could they could go for a oil stand or a a, a petro bricks currency we, we we definitely need a name we need a name I'll, I'll see if i can put my savvy to some to use and uh, come up with something but it's just nothing comes to mind it's just it's the bricks currency it's like okay well what are, what are we really going to call it we, we can't call it uh, the bricks currency forever that gets a little redundant and honestly uh, it makes it hard to tell the story but yeah they could they could have a gold standard they could even go for a petro bricks <laughs> currency they could do whatever they want they have the commodities producers on their side in terms of mineral and energy resources they can do it so that's on board that's on deck we know it's going to happen it's going to take them a minute and we figured as much it's a brand new currency and it's going to be servicing the trade it's going to be used as a trade settlement for how many countries yeah that's going to be something in the works we know they're doing that they added six countries iran saudi arabia the united arab emirates egypt ethiopia and argentina mexico mexico turkey belarus uh probably going to join at some point later on as well i see venezuela coming on board and who else would join the BRICS? trying to think indonesia might indonesia maybe afghanistan maybe afghanistan or maybe some countries in central asia i think hungary (laughs) if they if they got the if they got the choice if they had the option if they were not landlocked or or well they're always going to be landlocked but if they had a border with russia which they might by the end of the ukraine war i feel like they would apply to join the BRICS. france wants to they want in on the BRICS summit they want they want it in france kind of maybe might potentially join at some point maybe we don't know we'll see we'll definitely see they're a little bit of a wild card but you know i see uh, a lot of other countries in africa are gonna, probably going to join at some point as well but just think about the major the heavy hitters here just think about the heavy hitters here congo might come along for the ride as well yeah. i almost said south africa but i don't know everyone forgets that south africa is a part of the BRICS, and i i almost forgot as well but you know so yeah we can expect a lot of other countries who are already sort of uh, queued up for potential membership to come on board either next year uh and or in the following years but yeah BRICS expansion has been approved as evident by the addition of those six countries and likely more are going to follow so with more countries like that and with a lot of economic heavy hitters not just in terms of the size of economy like brazil or russia or saudi arabia but in terms of commodities and resources produced like you're talking the gulf states plus egypt and ethiopia i'm talking brazil and eventually uh, brazil and argentina mind you and eventually i think even mexico venezuela and maybe someone else from latin america who knows these are some these are major major economic forces at play and i think that they will be able to support and sustain their currency and that that, that currency is going to take a minute to put together when you look at the countries involved so we know that's going to happen we know that they've approved that 
they can expand and that's going to open the door to a lot of other countries joining we they have the new development bank that's the name of it the new development bank which is going to be used for major investment uh projects throughout the BRICS countries and potentially throughout non-BRICS members as well i have a feeling it's primarily going to be centered on say africa and central asia and latin america that's my personal guess as to where a lot of the investments going to get funneled uh and it's going to essentially overlay uh the belt and road and the russian uh educational and energy investment going on in africa Africa's just going to be a straight-up winner from all this. We can observe that is going to be the case. So we know those things are happening. And we know they have a commitment to de-dollarization because they're doing deals in local currencies. They they agreed that they were going to continue to advance that trend of countries doing more and more trade in local currencies rather than in the dollar. Uh, but they want something, and this is something that was brought up, with India, uh, uh, I forget where I heard it, but I, it was something about the cost of financial transfers. Because when you f when you take a currency and you try to translate it into another currency using the dollar and Western finance as the intermediary, there's transfer there's transfer costs. There's a, a certain percentage gets skimmed off the top. And when you're dealing in these multi-billion dollar deals or even high multi-million, like ten, a few tens of millions, a few hundreds of million, you know, really big deals between countries, every decimal point matters when you're talking about money. That's, that can be really costly. So from that perspective, and that sort of opens up a whole new line of thinking here, the cost savings perspective of having an alternative to the Western financial to Western finance, where you can have potentially a lower transfer fee cost, a lower transfer fee, which will then lower the cost of moving money between BRICS nations, which then more money can be allocated towards the things that they actually want to do instead of paying people to sit on their ass in an office in some Western financial uh, building or any other financial building for that matter, because they could have easily just replaced it with someone else, but they want something different. And that opened up a, a brand new perspective for me, because think about the smaller countries who don't have, don't necessarily have much to work with to begin with. They can't really, they can't afford to be having uh, X percent skimmed off the top of their deals just as a transit fee especially if it's investment going into them or hell if if they're trying to purchase something from another country that they need they want every uh insert currency here <laughs> they want every one of their for lack of a better term dollars they want every one of their dollars to go as far as it can go but if m part of your money is being skimmed off the top as a transfer fee because you have to convert it to the currency of the country you're doing the, the trade with and you go through the dollar as you do that, which means you go through Western finance and financial capital to do that. And they just get to skim money off the top for free once when you convert to dollars and then twice when you convert from dollars to the currency that you're trying to go to. That adds up very quickly. So the cost savings perspective might also be something we should think about when we think about the BRICS currency and them 
and these local currency deals that they're doing where they will accept trade in, in between each other instead of going through the dollar. Because while that has its own problems, logistically speaking, the cost savings might end up being worth it depending on the countries at play. If you do a lot of trade with, with one country and you can get that country to accept your currency and you'll accept their currency, well, you cut out the middleman and now, just like how the Portuguese went uh, circumnavigated the globe to get to the spice islands in the east and they went around the middlemen of the middle east and even though that was really expensive to do it ended up saving them an immense amount of money on luxuries and bringing down the price of luxuries throughout all of europe something similar might end up happening with financing and the movement of capital where sure local currency deals and even the building from scratch of a gold-backed trade settlement currency might be expensive on in its own right, but the cost savings in the long term might just justify doing it anyway. That's something to think about. So those are the major points of the BRICS summit, in case it was sort of hard to follow through my ranting. But yeah, major developments. And we'll probably see some more next year. Uh, it's not too many tangibles, you know, aside from the addition of new members and the agreements to continue uh, local currency deals. Those are the, the sort of the tangibles. Uh, but it's you can't just expect everything to happen in one summit. So we'll see what happens as the years go by and you get more and more BRICS summits because uh, things are heating up internationally. Decades are flying by in days. So we will keep our eyes on these developments. But yeah, uh, sorry on my part for going off on half a million tangents about America. But I think that these are really positive developments. And I think that the potential of a positive and constructive interplay between the United States and the BRICS is too big to ignore. Especially when... We're sort of blinded by the politics of our day where it's, oh, we're doing this, oh, we're doing that. You know, we see things as they are or how we want to see them, not necessarily as they could be. But when we look at what could be, you can see a lot of good that can come from this. And again, we don't need to join the BRICS, but we could work with the nations of the BRICS. Just like how I talk about how we could work with countries who signed on to the Belt and Road, you get a trade deal with them. And now if the Belt and Road succeeds in their country, we have a bigger trading partner. And if it fails, well, we have a trading partner. We have a trading partner. And it's something similar with the BRICS. We can really make the emergence of a new world order, the multipolar world order, we can really make that work for us if we want to. If, if we had the strategic flexibility to do so which I think we'll only have once we get rid of these alliances. But yeah, uh, I, I mean it. I really do mean it. Like, I'm, I might sound like some sort of a unrealistic pie-in-the-sky guy for saying that, especially in a time where everyone's looking for the real enemy, whether it be Russia or China, Iran, North Korea, everyone's looking for the real enemy. I think we have more potential to be gained more potential gains to be gained by working with these countries that we're told are our enemies. 
I mean, Trump got a deal with the Taliban. Trump walked across the DMZ four times in one day without getting shot. So are these countries, are these entities really our enemy? Or are they just foreign? Foreign peoples who don't want us stepping on their shoes and are perfectly willing to work with us so long as we respect their boundaries, just like we demand that they expect our boundaries. Trump would have gotten us a deal with the Russians if it wasn't for Russiagate, which sort of laid the foundation. Uh, This is a common critique from, say, Jimmy Dore, that Russiagate laid the foundation for the psychosis people have with regards to Russia and the openly hostile attitudes towards Russia, which enables giving hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine where we're only now coming around to saying, you know what, maybe, maybe maybe we've done enough for Ukraine only now after a year, after a year and a half of war, you know, but yeah, we would have gotten a deal with Russia. We fought trade wars with just about everybody. And we got deals with almost everybody. China was next. China was next. We were in the works of getting a trade deal with China. The the purpose of fighting the trade deal with China was not just to have a trade deal with, uh, a trade war with China, excuse me. The trade deal was the end point. That was the goal, was to get a new trade deal that was mutually beneficial, not just, well, we get a little bit and then they get all this. The point of the trade war was to renegotiate the deal and to get a new deal that was mutually beneficial to both of us. That was the goal of the trade wars. And it, we almost had one. Trump was in the process of getting one, then COVID came along. So these major deals, and, and those two deals alone, the Russia deal and the China deal, would have just completely upended the geopolitical order that is the status quo in the United States right now. Had he gotten those two deals, everything would have been turned on its head, and we would have quickly come to the conclusion, uh, we the people, would have quickly been able to see, oh, wow, these countries aren't actually our enemies, they're just other countries who have their own interests. And if we can make agreements that appeal to and serve our mutual interests, we can coexist just fine. We don't need a cold war with China. We don't need a cold war with Russia. We can just make deals and leave each other alone. The the political status quo we live in right now where it's either a war with China or a war with Russia wouldn't exist had he achieved those deals. I think that we're gonna see, uh, that we have the potential to do something similar with the BRICS and the multipolar world, we can just make deals and then everybody benefits. And plus with the BRICS, they do a lot of things that I, I say we should do in the United States. That So that's also part of my obsession with the interplay between BRICS and United States, because they talk about a, a gold-backed trade settlement currency. I did a whole segment back in, what was it, February, March, talking about the Gold Standard Restoration Act and how that is the way we should be going. And I was so happy that it was brought uh, before Congress. I think that sound money is the way forward. We should never have left it. But now we've learned our mistake, hopefully. And we can go back to sound money. The BRICS are moving to sound money. And people are, oh, oh, the the dollar is about to be dethroned from as the, the world reserve currency. You know, that that's the, the constant fear now. I thought the BRICS was a nothing burger. I thought China was going to collapse. And we'll get into that later on. Well, you remember when China did that deal with Arabia to 
where they could buy oil in Yuan, in Chinese Yuan. Yeah. Why is our currency dependent on other countries using our currency for interactions between each other, interactions that don't involve the United States? Why is the value of our currency dependent on that? Why do we derive the value of our currency from insert country here buying oil from Arabia in dollars? Why have we outsourced the value of our currency? We shouldn't do that. We should have sound money, gold backed by gold, and then you have some real fiscal responsibility. You give it to the Fed, and now the, the money supply is only as great as how much gold you have sound money and then it doesn't matter who is or isn't using your currency because your currency is based in something real the BRICS is basing their currency in something real they're not they're not about to sit there and go oh yeah we're gonna make a brand new currency we're gonna get away from the 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 american-led system and we're just gonna print the new currency until we feel like we're satisfied no one's gonna go along with that that's why that's why they're going to gold they wouldn't solve any problems if they did that that's why they're going to gold we should we should go to gold they go to gold, we go to gold. It it all just works. It's it's symbiotic. I think that's the word that I've been searching for. It's symbiotic. The things that America should be doing for itself and the things that BRICS is doing for itself and its members are symbiotic. BRICS wants to help facilitate trade between its member states and potentially those outside of BRICS as well. The United States should be the great trading nation using our central position where we have access through our coastlines to Europe, Africa, well, uh, easy access. We have direct lines of access to Western Europe, direct lines of access to West Africa, the entire Western coastline of Africa. We have direct access to all of Latin America. We have direct access via the, the West Coast to all of East Asia, North and South. Now, the Indian Ocean, that's a little bit tougher to get to, but, you know, uh, but we, we can still get there. We can, technically, through the Straits of Malacca, through the Cape of Good Hope, or, and, you know, the Suez Canal. It, it's harder getting to in the Indian Ocean. Uh, but, shoot, minus India, that's access to the entire world that we have because of where we are physically and what our borders look like. We should be doing trade with everybody. So the BRICS facilitating trade between its members, we should already be doing trade with all of the members. We should be benefiting passively from the BRICS and what the BRICS are doing. A strong BRICS currency is one thing. A, a, a trade, a international, uh, uh, excuse me, a trade settlement currency backed by gold is one thing. But we should be backing our currency by gold increasing its value so that when our manufacturers need to buy something if they need to purchase it it had the dollar every dollar that they have can go really far especially if they buy it from foreign countries the dollar is really strong today when compared to other currencies but imagine if it was backed by gold and how much stronger it would be and speaking of gold and you know the gold-backed trade settlement currency that the BRICS are going to have if they're going to have that settlement currency and it's going to be pegged to gold what's going to stop other countries from either building up gold reserves or pegging their own currencies to gold or some commodity as well 
similar to how OPEC works together to sort of set the price of oil, there's a potential that BRICS could be sort of that, but in the commodity, the other commodities like the metals and rare earths, potentially gold. And there again, American independence from that organization would benefit us more than being in it because just like with OPEC, we don't, we're not a part of OPEC. So we don't need to cut our production when they do. Uh, as a matter of fact, they benefit us by doing that because then we can eat up their market share by producing more oil. Now, granted, America is too big of a consumer of oil to really compete with them, with the other producers as an exporter. Because while we're up there in terms of production, we're, uh, you compare our consumption to like Russia and, and Arabia, yeah, we're not going to be much of a much of an oil exporter. We're not going to be a much bigger exporter than, say, Iraq or even Egypt or Venezuela. That being said, energy independence in the United States means that we have energy available for export. And if we're not a part of OPEC, then that means when OPEC does its little its little price wars and they try to raise the price by cutting production, that means we can our producers can make more money abroad instead of trying to fleece us for money. We get to have cheap energy here, and then our producers get to make more money abroad. Staying out, having strategic autonomy and independence benefits us more than being a part of the group, being a part of the club. And it certainly benefits us more than being a part of the West. Uh, well, we are, we're a Western country, we're just like Russia is. We'll never not be a Western country, but there's no need for us to go attaching ourselves permanently to the Europeans. We should pursue our own interests. And with regard to the BRICS, if they become a sort of OPEC of commodities like minerals, gold, silver, uranium, etc., oh, Niger, maybe Niger will be a, an addition later on down the line. We'll, we'll see how this goes. But when you see the minerals, the, the minerals game, um, if BRICS were to become a sort of OPEC for minerals, well then, it, they would start to set the price, and I'm sure that they would work together to do that, to set the price at something that would give them all a nice hefty load of money <laughs> in exchange for those commodities. Now, how far they would get, considering how big I expect bricks to become, I'm not entirely sure. Because when you start adding a lot of countries, you get a lot of different interests, so it's put it's a potential that you could end up creating divisions in BRICS by sort of trying to set the prices too high for certain commodities. So I'm not entirely sure that's going to be the case. But I'm sure that BRICS members are going to work with each other on the side with, through their own organizations outside of BRICS to potentially do that if, if it's in their interest to do. And then you get, uh, well, at the very least, we, we know that BRICS is probably going to go for some version of that with regards to gold because well if they're going to back their currency by gold and you probably want to control the supply of it just a little bit if you if you have so many suppliers of the commodity just a little bit you want to control the supply of gold so you don't immediately get sabotaged by an overflow of gold but with that comes the u.s role in that or at the very least the opportunity we have which is if we're not a part of that club and they start setting commodity prices higher and higher, be it through BRICS or through BRICS members 
or BRICS affiliates working together outside of BRICS to do that in, in the same vein as OPEC does with oil, we could sit there and go, oh, you're going to raise the price artificially of this commodity here? Well, we're going to produce insert commodity here. If you're not going to sell it to other people, well, then we'll sell it to other people and we'll make the money while you do that. So in a sense, America has the potential to be the counterbalance to international uh, uh, sort of cliques who want to artificially raise the price of certain goods and commodities. The United States, just by serving our own interests in this new world, could end up being the balancer where other countries like uh, other groupings of countries like OPEC, but for, say, other resources and commodities would try to cut production to raise the price, which benefits them. And then United States comes in. If we are outside of those organizations, we are not bound by the agreements that they make. So when they cut production, we can raise production and then we benefit as well. They'll benefit in the short term from the rise in the price. And then we benefit in the long term from the market share or the medium term, because eventually they're going to bring production back up and then we'll sort of be pushed out. It'll be a, a push and pull. But the, uh, there again, the interplay between America and the multipolar world, the BRICS, it just goes hand in hand. I, I really hope I'm conveying my ideas to you here. It, it's like a match made in heaven. But it requires the United States to do things that make sense for the United States to do. It requires us to stop trying to be the world's police. And it requires us to stop trying to babysit Europe. It requires America to put America first. And, that, and it all just works out. And it benefits not just us, but the world. Because the, all the people who don't produce oil get screwed over when OPEC starts cutting production like that. I mean, $100 a barrel is crazy. Now imagine if they could purchase oil from the United States. Imagine if American oil was sort of on the market and unaffected by those production cuts. Well, now they can look towards an, 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 a steadily increasing supply of American oil, potentially at a discount. Maybe we sell it for the international price. But as more American oil comes online, that steadily puts downward pressure on the prices until – so it, it, it caps out. It doesn't go to $200 a barrel, you know? And then we benefit from that. Then the the oil producers start bringing it back up or whatever commodity, insert commodity here. They bring their production back up and then every, everything goes back to normal. You know, it's an interplay. And it it just works together in a very symbiotic nature. I think that the BRICS and, a, and an America first United States are a match made in heaven. And it works best by us not being a part of this club. This is a very positive development that I think disproportionately benefits the entire world, ourselves included. And I really hope I've sort of conveyed that to you in a, a more clear way than me just going off on rants and tangents about America when I'm supposed to be talking about the BRICS. But that's the BRICS. Those are my thoughts on the BRICS. All right, but that's the BRICS. So now we'll get into the second topic of today, which is the coup in Gabon. Yes, an, uh, yet another coup rocks yet another african nation uh for those who don't know where gabon is we'll just take out our trusty dusty maps well in my case i don't necessarily need to do that because i did that earlier i have these giant map posters on my walls i say giant it's more like 
like the length of a single arm but it's nice to have you know uh there's this one map i saw when i was working at this one job this guy had a massive map of north america i wish that i knew where he got that one from i want that but uh, i digress <clears throat> i digress but anyway get your maps out now look to africa now you'll you'll see nigeria sort of smack dab in the middle where Africa bends in like a boomerang. That coastline right there, you'll see Nigeria. You go south, uh, uh, like two countries, and then you get to Gabon. It's right there, right south of Cameroon. That's where the coup is. Well, that's where the latest coup is. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. But yeah, there was another coup there. It's Gabon. Uh, another country with a particular history with the French, a colonial history with the French. And now we have another anti-colonial uprising. And I'll I'll see if I can elaborate on this thought later on, but it, it seems to me like it's starting to get formulaic, if you know what I mean, where these coups are happening, and then they take on a certain character, which is anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. They, they, they happen. They take on this nature. It's sort of, it's a popular coup. Or at the very least, that's what it seems. Again, only time will tell. But you have this popular coup with the military, with the general support of the people, the populace, overthrows a pro-Western or sort of neo-colonialist puppet government, or that's the way they would view it anyway. They overthrow it. Military assumes control. And then they start, well, locking things down so that they don't get cooed again by sort of Western forces. I just find it strange that these coups happen back to back to back like that. Uh, and that they all take on this same sort of anti-colonial, anti-Western uh, nature. And this is not me. Def this is not me defending colonialism. Like, as far as I'm concerned, the only good thing that came out of colonialism was the United States. <laughs> but yeah, maybe that's just a coincidence. But that is something I'm noticing with every coup that happens. It, particularly the ones that come out of the former French Empire, where they they come they come out taking on this same character, and um, perhaps the details of which are being shared, um, from military to military, which would suggest a level of international cooperation that isn't necessarily apparent from looking looking from the outside in at a first glance. Now, are they actually working together to do this? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe they're just really good opportunists and they see that the time of change has come and it's essentially now or never. They're either going to have their independence now or they're not going to have it at all. And I think that they're choosing independence. And since they're choosing independence, that is perhaps the reason why you see sort of popular support for the coups. Maybe that's the case. Maybe I'm mistaken, but that's what it looks like uh, uh, for me, sort of noticing this pattern here. So we have this coup in Gabon, uh, and this one happened after the former president, Ali Bongo, 
was essentially declared the winner of the election. He was deposed by the military, obviously. That's why it's a coup. Uh, after this victory, now I'm don't have enough. Uh, I don't have enough context for myself to de- to decipher whether or not it was legitimate or not. Uh, I can go on about the American elections all day, but just like with Brazil, I'm sort of gonna tell it to you how it's being told. He was proclaimed victorious, and then the military overthrew him. Whether it was was the vote legitimate, was it illegitimate? The military claims it was illegitimate, and for the time being, uh, not enough people seem to object to that conclusion to bring him back into power. Certainly not people inside Gabon itself. So I suppose that those claims of illegitimate uh, or election interference and election shenanigans, maybe they were valid, maybe they weren't. Uh, again, I can't make those assertions. If it's America, different story. I can, <laughs> I can make those assertions all day long, and I will. As a matter of fact, Trump will in in due time, and that's going to be some very satisfying vindication. But he was proclaimed the victor. He's been deposed by the military, and now you have he, he's been arrested, just like the president in Niger, and you have more talk of intervention. Now, it's it's strange. It's like it's rinse and repeat. It's like nothing is learned from the people on the losing end of this cycle. Because uh, you have talk of intervening in Gabon, Gabon, in Gabon now, as if the intervention in Niger was enough or Niger. So. On top of this, on top of this new coup, when we'll see how this one plays out, if it's similar to, or uh, we'll see in what ways it was similar to Niger and what what ways it was different. Uh, Because it's obviously a different country, different military. So we'll see how it plays out. Uh, Although, I imagine that in, in time, wait a second. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I'm thinking about the borders of ECOWAS here. Because ECOWAS sort of takes up the coastline uh, of that of that bend, that boomerang bend in Africa. And Gabon is to the south of most of the ECOWAS states. That's a very strategic location. Uh, potentially detrimental in the event of an actual war. Uh... I don't think Gabon would be very appreciative of having to fight ECOWAS by itself because it can't quite be supported by, say, Mali and Burkina Faso like Niger can. Uh, Niger. Uh, Niger. I'll figure out which one I want. <laughs> but yeah, they're sort of isolated, but in a way, it does provide a strategic flank, so to speak. Because I don't, I don't imagine that Gabon is going to go along passively with a military intervention into Niger either, because an intervention in Niger to restore a deposed presidency would open the door, just like Mali and Burkina Faso, it would open the door to an intervention into Gabon to restore a deposed presidency. And it would essentially undermine and defeat the purpose of the coup if they allowed that to happen. So now you have this country with a military junta, on the exact rear, 
exactly to the opposite direction of ECOWAS that Niger is. Niger is to the north of ECOWAS. Gabon is now to the south. So, in the event that they actually went through with this, and there is indication that there is still that they're still going to try to go through with it. I thought the bluff was called. So far, it looks like it has been called. But there is hinting, there is hints that it might still go forward. That intervention in Niger, which would kick off with the coup in Gabon now, just due to their own interest, it would kick off an even wider war in West Africa now. Instead of just ECOWAS versus Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso, now you add Gabon to the equation. So the war, the potential war, expands by yet another state in Africa. And ECOWAS would then be presented with a two-front war uh, in the Sahel in the north, the deserts to the north, and the jungles to the south. Now, that's, that's, they're going to have a very fun time doing that. Even though Gabon is small, I have a feeling that anyone who tries to go fight a war with them is going to have a very fun time trying to trying to deal with the trees speaking Gabonese. <laughs> but yeah, the potential war that is being stoked here with, the, with Niger still at the center of it all, the potential war now widens. And we'll see if any more African countries have coups in them. Now, what will really shake things up is if uh, an, another ECOWAS member has a coup. And that would really shake things up. Will it happen? I don't know. I'm not necessarily saying it should. But I'm saying that that would really throw a wrench into this whole thing. And might put pressure on the remaining ECOWAS states to follow through before coups happen. That would put them in an even greater disadvantageous position. So, Africa is on the precipice. Africa is definitely on the precipice. Uh, one civil war in Ethiopia replaced by a civil war in Sudan. And now you have a potential war in all of West Africa, which could very easily bleed into and overlap with the war in Sudan. Now, granted, Sudan is like, way well actually it's only one country away now granted chad is a very big country chad is a very big country but if you have a, a, a belt of conflict running from the african west coast all the way to the east coast because sudan is on the red sea well you have the potential for the two sides in each conflict to start to overlap with one another for their own interests and then you get a really wide conflict. Now, how many people would actually be involved in the fighting? Not entirely sure. It's not like these are the biggest and heaviest hitting militaries on the planet. But we are looking at a truly second great, a truly great African war, a second great African war. Now, I was sort of referring to the string of smaller scale brush fire conflicts beforehand, which will rip through the Sahel uh, between a lot of these militant groups and, say, Nigeria and Chad and Mali. I, I used to refer to that as the Second Great African War. Uh, well, that pales in comparison to what we're looking at now, and I think I might have to take the title away from that and give it to this. We are looking at a truly Second Great African War. 
and how many people will end up on the kill count? There's already a thousand people dead in Sudan. Who knows? I mean, you have Nigeria with uh, what two hundred and sixty something million people. So it's it's a very rapidly developing situation that has the potential to become really bad. <laughs> a lot of potential to become really bad. Uh, and the French are not making things worse. Because while all this is going down, in Niger, you have the French embassy essentially being put under siege. Because the Niger military has demanded that the French ambassador leave. But Macron, in another... Uh, genius move has ordered that he stay under you know under the pretext that the coup the government telling him to leave is illegitimate and that the only legitimate government is the elected president who is now deposed you know ali well not not ali bongo the other guy (laughs) from niger ali bongo is from gabon so that is an incredibly dumb dumb thing to do it's just so dumb it's just so dumb they're doubling down on dumb they're doubling down on stupid because they the only reason they're even in this position where they're having a standoff at the embassy is because you threatened a military intervention the second there was a coup then you got embargoed from niger gold and niger uranium and again this is a country france who gets 70 percent of its energy from nuclear power and Niger is like one of their top suppliers for like half or something close to half of their nuclear fuel. And so by doing that incredibly stupid move, trying to threaten an, a military intervention into the country that makes your life possible <laughs> through their, their uranium, they embargoed you. And your response is, and there was your response to them demanding that your ambassador leave since you've made yourself a a threat to them you didn't need to do that france didn't need to do that but they made themselves a threat to niger and now niger is like okay well your ambassador's gotta leave we want all of you out your response to that is to say no don't leave and now there's a, a standoff and they're lucky they're lucky that this is the 21st century not the 1800s well i actually i suppose that niger is the one that's lucky it's not the 1800s but they're lucky that Niger's military has exercised as much restraint as they have. Because had it been like back in the day, I mean, back in the day, day, that ambassador would have been shot. His head would have been put on a spike and paraded down the street as a symbol of defiance. But instead, we have a, a de facto siege of the French embassy in Niger, and where the military is, deny, is demanding that they be no food no water no electricity supplied to the building uh the french ambassador currently is holding out uh probably probably eating all the the vending machine food uh, to his heart's content but eventually he's got to come out eventually he has got to come out and what happens then we don't know we don't know what this guy's gonna do we don't know what the niger military might do we don't know what the french we don't know what the French are going to do. They could pay a mercenary group to go in and just bomb the building. Quite frankly, they could do that and then blame it on the Niger military. And now you have a case for war, a false flag, but 
let's be honest, people don't really catch up to the false flags until after the war starts. <clears throat> Ukraine. But the situation can devolve really fast right now. Like, all the, all the cards are there. It's just a matter of how they get played. Uh, we hope for peace, but the possibility of war here is just a hair trigger away from becoming the reality. Now, Macron is, again, doubling down on stupid. His ambassador is no longer getting food, electricity, or water, but he wants him to stay. And it's... Eventually, this is going to get resolved. Now, whether it's by peace or by force remains to be seen. But France has also given the green light to an intervention from ECOWAS. They've done that. They've threatened an intervention themselves. It's... It's a mess, to say the least. It is definitely a mess. Now, whether France actually has the wherewithal to do something themselves beyond, say, like an airstrike, I'm not entirely sure. We're going to see very quickly, if the war pops off, we're going to see very quickly just how much the Ukraine war has depleted France's ability to do these types of things. And maybe, maybe if we're, you know, we take that step back and think of the broader geopolitical uh, context, maybe all the massive amounts of aid being given to Ukraine, which is peddled to us by the propaganda press, is this overt good thing that we're doing. Uh, if you look at it from a different perspective, uh, instead of the we have to sacrifice to make sure that Ukraine can stand, can stand, you put yourself in the shoes of someone else, someone who lives under the French yoke, under the French neo-colonial rule. Suddenly, that sacrifice for Ukraine isn't a, a, a heroic and righteous thing. It's an opportunity. Oh, you just gave away your military stockpiles to a foreign nation for a war that you're not even involved in? How are you going to stop us if we were to say, I don't know, overthrow the government? Maybe that is the reason we're seeing these back-to-back coups. Now, Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, they, they were there earlier. But Niger and Gabon, that's just opportunism. That's just some really good opportunism. And the longer the war in Ukraine goes on, the more of their equipment they give to Ukraine, and the more of their ammunition, more importantly, that they give to Ukraine, the less they will be able to do anything in their former colonial empire. Meaning that more countries are going to be able to rise up and overthrow the French neo-colonial rule there. So there's a potential that more of these coups happen. Uh, it is a sort of inverse relationship to how much weaker France gets from its aid that it gives to Ukraine. The more aid France gives to Ukraine, the more military aid you gives to Ukraine, the more these... Um, rebellion, so to speak, are going to pop up. It's the weaker France becomes, the higher the likelihood of a coup in their colonial empire. That's what we might be seeing. Now, we'll, of course, we'll have to wait and see there, because we only have like two examples right now. But if we start to see more, we we can call that a trend. So, it's... It's getting interesting, it's getting dangerous, it's it's a lot of things. Dangerous is at the top of the list. 
but it's definitely getting interesting. And I am happy I had that little uh, epiphany at that moment. And I brought it to you in real time. But yeah. Uh, and last but not least, we have Burkina Faso also officially authorizing the deployment of troops to Niger in the event of a foreign intervention. So Burkina Faso is now officially on, they are now officially committed. They have authorized the troops. That there was one thing to say that they would, now they've authorized the troops to, to go to Niger in the event of an intervention into Niger by other countries. So we'll see if Mali follows suit. We'll see if Gabon joins in on the fun we will definitely have to keep our eyes on this situation uh because it can blow up really quickly it, and it all it's all centered on niger for the time being hopefully nothing bad happens but we'll just keep our eyes on these developments as they go but lastly and certainly not leastly here we have china's economy china's economy so very recently I've started seeing stories about the slowdown of China's economy. And for whatever reason, and maybe it's just me diverging even further and further and further from the political status quo. For, so forgive me if it seems obvious to you, but for whatever reason, I just, there's this undertone of celebration about this slowdown of China's economy that I just don't understand. And to exemplify what I mean, so that you in case you haven't come across this yourselves, I have grabbed an article from Sky News UK titled, Is China's Economy Running Out of Steam? And so we'll just get into this. And as we go, I'll sort of lay out to you what's being presented here and why it confuses me. So we st this article starts off talking about the economic model of China, saying, quote, the economic model of vast borrowing and building projects worked when China was poor and needed new roads, bridges, and airports. But it is no longer sustainable as the nation finds itself drowning in debt and with nothing left to build." End quote. So right off the bat, we have them pinning the blame of the slowdown of China's economy on their economic model. Right off the bat, they're saying their economic model failed, which will partially, will actually quite, uh, it'll contradict itself a little bit, but in a significant way later on when they talk about uh, consumers. But remember this, the economic model of vast borrowing and building projects isn't working anymore. That's the, the first uh, conclusion that they come to, that they want to push as China is now failing and their economy is now failing. So right off the bat, they lay the, the framework for, oh, China's economy is failing now because this model is no longer working. Uh, the article talks about the unfinished infrastructure projects from bridges and roads to tunnels and the infamous massive yet empty apartment complexes and entire ghost cities that the Chinese have built. Uh, now, granted, we would love some of those in the United States. I mean, you see, especially in like New York or California. Look, God, uh, people live in those cities. I could, you will never catch me paying 
two, three, four thousand dollars a month. You will never catch me paying that much for anything monthly. Okay, you you're, you're just not gonna get not not rent. Goodbye. I'm. Why would I stay here? I'm being fleeced. I am getting the hell up out of here. Now, granted, that doesn't mean we we should have a mass evacuation of the cities. It means we have issues that should be resolved with building more housing. But that would mean reforming zoning laws and lots of regulations that the current governments of the states don't really want to deal with. But I just find it interesting that having plenty of available housing is a bad thing for a country with a billion and a half people. Uh, it's just... And you'll, you'll start to notice some of these these things, which, when you really think about it, actually might end up being good things. <laughs> but but I, we'll, we'll continue the article. We'll continue the article. You'll, you'll see more of that as we go. And you'll start to notice that the framing of this, this whole China's economy is slowing down, and therefore it's somehow a good thing. You'll notice... There's, there's problems with that narrative. I'll just put it that way. So yeah, the, the article talks about the unfinished infrastructure projects and the apartment complexes, and it, and it reads, quote, the mighty Chinese economy, uh, oh, let me, let me put the voice on you. Quote, the mighty Chinese economy that once delivered seemingly miraculous growth of some 10 plus percent a year is slowing and and it continues saying, quote, the economic model of driving up GDP with vast borrowing and building worked when China was poor and needed new roads and bridges, but it, it's no longer sustainable in a modern China that now finds itself drowning in debt and with nothing to build. So they sort of repeat themselves there. And, uh, but you can already see the the, the tone, the, the snarky, uh, self-aggrandizing tone where it's, oh, look, you're... You you made a mistake and now you have to live with the consequences of that. See, you're you were, you were hot. Yeah, you thought we were feeling you. Well, we're not feeling you. You're you were growing at ten percent, but you're only growing at like six now. You're you're slowing down. You're you're broke. <laughs> you it, this. Uh, I almost can't stand listening to myself. The, the talking down, the the berate, the derisiveness uh, in the tone of this article, and for what reason? Because they have uh, extra housing. Because they have massive infrastructure projects that they haven't finished yet. <clears throat> it, but I'll continue. Uh, and they they say that. And uh, uh, but before I continue, I just, I just want to since they repeated this uh, the whole. You can driving up GDP with vast borrowing and building works when you're poor and you need new roads and bridges and airports, but it's not sustainable when you're a modern country and now you're in debt and there's nothing left to build. Well, who gets to decide that? Well, um, not not the whole you're in debt, uh, <laughs> but who gets to decide when there's nothing left to build? Because the Chinese have decided that there's still things to build. So who gets to decide that? What they they just have to stop building things? Should they just stop building infrastructure projects because you feel like it? Oh, they they have oh they're having a 
a slowdown in the economy. So now suddenly the entire, they're having one slowdown and now the entire economic model is just inadequate. It's inadequate. It's, It's called into question. It's the root cause of the problem. It's like, where are you getting this from? So essentially what they're saying is the government building infrastructure projects in their country is bad. And look, I'm a fiscal conservative kind of person, but even I've come around to the fact that the role of government is precisely to build these large infrastructure projects. Now, would would I approve of the government going in debt to do that? Uh, that depends on the project. It, it better be fucking worth it. But you can see the results. The Chinese are, in purchasing power parity terms, the largest economy in the world. And notice how the article only points at infrastructure and the un- the unfinished infrastructure at that. It only points at those things. It does it doesn't look at the uh, tens of thousands of miles of modern rail or or the tens of thousands of miles of high speed rail. It doesn't look at all the manufacturing that all the manufacturing and the modern ports and all and the the cities, the thriving cities that have been built from the ground up. Look at Shenzhen. Uh, down in the southern China, where Hong Kong and Macau is, look at that. Look at Shanghai. What Shanghai has become. Look at a lot of these interior cities that are heavily populated. I mean, hell, look at Wuhan. Look at Wuhan. Look at how big that city is. They have a whole institute of virology over there. How you? Uh, well, we'll, we'll leave that one alone. <laughs> but you have whole cities that essentially produce the entirety of the world's demand of certain products. There's like, there's, there's a, a city dedicated to building umbrellas in China. So uh, it's just, it's so immature. It's so immature and dishonest the way this article comes at. And I, I'm not even really trying to be defending China here, but it's just like, don't lie to me. <laughs> don't lie to me. Be, give me the facts. Like, sure, their economy is slowing. But to call into question the entire economic model because of some unfinished roads, bridges, and tunnels, and ghost cities, uh, and just completely ignore all the other things I mentioned, and the fact that this same economic model, mind you, has made China into the workshop of the world. They are the premier prom- manufacturing power. They are the largest economy in purchasing power parity terms. That means the yuan goes really fucking far inside of China. It goes really fucking far. And they have massive manufacturing base on top of that. And even in you know nominal terms, they're the second largest economy in the world. And the gap between them and the next guy, even in nominal terms, is ridiculous. It's rid- Japan's number three. Do we really believe Japan's economy is catching up to China? No. And, and in purchasing power parity terms, they are the largest. So this economic model of high debt, high construction has made China into the largest economic player on the planet. On the planet. But the entire thing is now called into question because, well... They are a, a developed country. They're a developed country, and their growth rates aren't, aren't going to be as high as they were before. 
they're supposed to not build infrastructure now? They're, they're supposed to just stop? And sure, you can make the argument, well, no one's living in the cities. Okay. Well, what happens when people do live in the cities? People move. Certain things happen. New industries get built. They're constantly building industries. They're constantly moving along with the Belt and Road. What happens when people have to move to new areas of the country? The buildings are already there. Now, uh, if it was in America, that's wasteful spending, of course. You built a whole city <laughs> and no one lives there. But give these these cities have been if you see the speed at which the chinese can build a, a skyscraper well these cities have sprung up give it give it a few a few years like like the chinese like to live where they live where they live where they grow up so you give it a, a few decades and see if these see how many of these ghost cities are still ghost cities on the other side i think the chinese eventually are going to sort of spread out especially when you see how overcrowded a lot of their their coastal cities are you start to spread the manufacturing into the the hinterlands of china and they start moving into the these ghost cities well now they're not going to be ghost cities anymore <clears throat> this is something that's going to take time this is an investment not uh, uh hmm this is a, a long-term investment not a short-term investment that, that's the way i want to put it and look at me, I'm, I'm defending an economic model that I don't even necessarily want in the United States. Uh, I would prefer a much more limited government where you do large infrastructure projects and you let private business take the reins. But I'm not foolish enough to say that's literally the only way you can ever run an economy or a government. Well, that's that's just silly. <laughs> that idea of economics uh, didn't pop up until, like, what, the Renaissance? Like, and, and it didn't come into practice uh, until even later on. And my goodness, I mean, it's, it's like these people who say that, uh, the only, well, who act in a manner where a democracy is the only legitimate form of governance. Everything else is illegitimate. Well, if that's true, then literally every government in human history would be illegitimate, but we have to, we have to understand and accept that different ways of doing things can and will be done. The Chinese economic model is one of those things. So to say the entire thing is inadequate now, because the Chinese are growing at six instead of ten percent, and this is just a number that I've heard six percent, is crazy to me. It's crazy to me, especially when we get to the other reason why the Chinese economy is slowing down that they conveniently put in the middle of the article so that we don't you don't lead with that. <clears throat> but we'll we'll continue. Uh, where was I? Yeah. It goes, the big, there are big questions about what happens next, the article says. And they then talk about, uh, well, oh, wait, that was, I think that was part of the quote I did earlier with the whole nothing left to build thing. And there are big questions about what happens next. The article then goes on talking about, it, it sort of zooms in on the city of Zunyi, which is in Guizhou province, which is like central but southern China. So like think of where, uh, say, um, Mississippi. Think of where, actually, no, better yet, think of where Arkansas is in the United States. That's sort of where I would pin Guizhou in China. Not quite on the coastline, the southern coastline, but in the middle of the country to the south, you know. That's where I'd pin Guizhou if I had to draw 
a parallel so that you understand where we're talking about here in the middle and then to the south but not quite on the coast so they, they zoom in on the city of Zunyi, which is in Guizhou province and they talk about how major projects have been built well haven't been finished and then they've been abandoned uh and then they zoom out a little bit onto Guizhou province as a whole saying quote in fact Guizhou province one of the poorest in the country is also the most indebted with its debt pile over 135 percent of its gdp the this rural province leaned heavily onto the chinese growth model that for so long delivered such remarkable numbers huge borrowing massive investments and vast building regardless of whether the projects were needed indeed guizhou has 11 airports many quite close to each other and nearly half of the world's 100 tallest bridges according to state media outlet economic daily so that's the end of the quote and here again we hear something that confronts and conflicts with the narrative that oh it's just economic model that they're dealing with this is the poorest province in china. this is one of the poorest provinces in china that you're zooming in on with these uh the ghost cities and unfinished infrastructure projects well gee if it's the poorest place in the country i wonder why those projects might be unfinished if no one's it, it's it's like they they answer their own questions as they go but they refuse to take yes for an answer and then they just keep going so they can push the narrative that china's economy is coming coming down look at look at the poor look at one of the poorest provinces in china and look at how it's not growing that that's crazy that's like well, again to to use arkansas that's like looking at the gdp of arkansas and saying look the u.s economy isn't growing it's like yeah you're gonna pick one of the poorest places in the country to make this comparison and then to make the judgment for the entire country as a whole like what are you doing <laughs> and again i'm i'm not even defending the chinese growth model here it that's their system and that that's what they choose to go with it works for them but to sit here and lie to me <laughs> about oh the the chinese economy the, the model the model just doesn't work and we're going to prove it to you by pointing at one of the poorest provinces in china a, a, a admittedly agrarian and rural province the the model isn't working we're building cities in uh, farmland and there aren't a lot of people living on the farmland to come live in the cities it's like well okay well if there's not a lot of people living there because it's an agrarian region of the country um then perhaps that's the reason why the infrastructure projects got started but didn't finish where are they going to go to uh, they, maybe the people have to move first to justify the completion of these projects it's like uh, come on now it's uh this this is that this is why they, the whole obsession with the downfall of china is such a a mind virus it's it corrupts the mind and gets you all worked up about things that don't have anything to do with you and it turns you into a liar <laughs> it turns you into a liar and you'll believe anything you want to believe so long as it contorts to exactly that what you want to believe <clears throat> i remember i used to be an, an avid listener slash watcher of china uncensored it's a 
good channel, good channel. Uh, but after a while, I'm just like, dang, do I really want to sit and listen to China bad for 10, 15 minutes or, or their, their hour to two hour long podcast I do where they're just, eh, they just sit eh, like, <clears throat> excuse me. It's the, the typical podcast format where you have a lot of people in a room talking about certain topics and their specialty is China. But it's like, do I really want to sit here and, and be and hear about how Falun Gong needs to be protected and how I'm the one who has to protect them? Do I really want to sit here and talk about how China is bad and how I'm the one who has to go do something about it when I know damn well that I don't consent to, to being that one? I already know. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to go fight the Chinese. You can go fight the Chinese. You want to, uh, do, I, do I really want to free Hong Kong or is it not my business? Like at a certain point, I'm like, huh, what am I gaining out of listening to these people? And they're nice people and they're a good channel. But what do I gain out of listening to them rant about China all day? And, and, what, and even if they're correct in the things that they say, and at this point I've come to dispute a number of things, uh, namely the, the Uyghurs, I am now not necessarily convinced that there's a genocide. Now, maybe there is. Maybe there is. But the Uyghur population isn't going down. It's grown. And China has more than enough resources to make sure that's not happening. They put them in re-education camps. Is that authoritarian? Yeah, that's really authoritarian. But is it worth the military intervention? And would the military intervention in its own right be worth it? Well, you have to win first. Because what did it take to stop the other genocides? The Armenian genocide, the, the Holocaust. What did it take to end those genocides? It took a world war. And those were against powers that were objectively smaller than the United States. Turkey, well, the Ottoman Empire, and Nazi Germany. You're talking about a peer power? And you're gonna you're gonna free these people who are in the deepest part of China away, like how are you even gonna get there? Because the Russians aren't gonna let you go. What you gonna you're gonna go through Afghanistan to free the Uyghurs? Good luck getting past the Taliban. They're not gonna let you go either. Pakistan doesn't want any of those problems. How are you gonna get there? China is the size of the United States. How are you gonna free these people? It's like I can understand. The, the sympathy for foreign peoples. But at a certain point, you got to look at a map. How are we going to free Hong Kong from China when they live next to China and they are a city-state? Well, not quite a city-state anymore. How are, we gonna free, how are you going to free Hong Kong when China is the one who annexed Hong Kong? Well, you're going to go fight a, uh, another opium war against them? Good luck with that. Freeing Hong Kong... Would be like freeing, freeing Hong Kong from China. Would be like freeing uh, San Francisco from the United States. Now, given the state of San Francisco, some people might welcome uh, uh, relinquishing that territory. I don't. I think we just make it better. But that's the equivalent of what you're talking about here. Now, who in their right mind is going to say that it's even possible to liberate, quote unquote? San Francisco from the United States or Sacramento. Nobody, no, nobody in their right mind is going to say that because it's idiotic. It's insane. And that's what's being proposed with the whole free Hong Kong thing. How are you going to do that? 
you can't. You can't. And that's something that people need to accept, that there are things that you can't do. There are things you can't do. And so at a certain point, it's like, huh, do I want to sit and listen to all these things that sound nice, but that I either don't want to do, don't need to do, or just flat out can't do? And hear China bad all day? Well, what, what do I gain from that? And again, I don't have anything against them. I was a very avid listener for a few years, but then I, I gave myself a reality check. I'm like, I am not necessarily gaining from this, especially when they would they would hop onto the the China's collapsing narrative every time something mildly bad would happen in China. And it's like, well, okay, well now it's, I, I it's not I can't rely on you for my news. I can't rely on you for my news. You're you're biased overtly, and you're willing to let those biases carry you to conclusions that the facts do not lead to. And so that's where how we get to today. <clears throat> where a lot of other people, other outlets, go along with those same biases and let the biases lead them to conclusions instead of the facts. And that's what's happening here. So the article continues uh, saying that the model... Well, they, they, they essentially say that the model has reached its limits. They claim that 44% of China's economy has consisted of investment, but that the problems still persist. And they then attribute this to a decline in consumer spending. Aha! A decline in consumer spending. And they say, quote, it is largely because other parts of the economy are struggling, exposing the fault lines at its core. Last month, prices in China actually fell when compared to the same month last year, raising fears of more long-term deflation. Now, I'll, I'll stop there and just say that it's it's really funny to me that they say that prices... Uh, these people have it so backwards, bro. Prices coming down is a problem to them. Pri- deflation, long-term deflation is a problem for them. A- and what would the solution be? For the prices to stay the same and to never get lower? Or, or, or would we prefer that China have hyperinflation like we have, where everything get, just keeps getting more expensive? And then we complain about the inflation. Well, the inflation is the problem then. And if inflation is a problem, then that means deflation is the solution. You want prices to go down. You can't just have prices go up and up and up and up and up. That's not how this works. They're upset. Their claim is that China's economy is failing because prices went down. Like what are the, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's it's crazy, and this this is the type of nonsense you'll get from people who go along with these narratives that play into the China bad uh, idea that they have in their head. You will see more of this, just like with all, all those other scares, where it's oh China's economy is going to collapse, oh it's going to collapse. And then it doesn't happen, and then the story just gets glossed on under the rug. Just thrown under the rug. So here we have another one of those. Eh. Consumer spending. Now, why is the consumer spending down, might one ask? Because we're, we're starting to get to the core of the problem here. Why is consumer spending down? How is deflation a bad a bad thing? Uh, well, we'll get the answer to one of those. It, it, but get this. It's even better. It's even better. Because... They say, quote, 
months of zero COVID rules that saw whole cities plunged into sudden extreme lockdowns, destroyed thousands of businesses, and vastly depleted family savings. The net result is that people just don't have the money to spend, and what they do have, they are reluctant to part with. End quote. So buried in the middle of the article is the actual reason why China's economy is slowing down. Well, on, on top of recessions in the West, of course, because exports, they export to us. And if we're in recession, then that means less exports. You know, there's international, there's an international dynamic to this. But the internal dynamic, which is what the article is focused on, the answer's right there. The answer's right there. Reduced consumer spending years of lockdown drained people's savings and financial resources so after nearly and and, and the irony just gets so sweet and juicy because after two years if you remember you know uh, all, uh half a million years ago when covid first began two from there on two whole years of driving driving the point up our ass about how lockdowns were necessary to fight COVID, and they were literally banning. People literally got banned off of platforms for so much as questioning the COVID guidance and the policies enacted. Banned, uh, shamed. South, South Dakota and Florida, they were shamed. Oh, you're going to be a super spreader. You're killing grandma if you didn't do lockdowns. So after two years of that, here we have the press coming around to common sense for the sole purpose of dunking on and ragging on China. Insane. Insane. <laughs> this is wild, bro. But it gets even crazier than that. It gets even crazier. Because then they go on to talk about youth unemployment in China. And how it was getting bad. And and how 16-year-olds were at a historic 21.3% unemployment rate. Guys, would someone think about the 16-year-olds? Wait a fucking second. <laughs> the 16-year-olds. The kids in school don't have a job. Unbelievable. <laughs> these people. These guys. Now, maybe, maybe this article is an anomaly. You know you know. Maybe this is this is an anomaly. Maybe this isn't necessarily uh, completely representative of the position. Maybe maybe a, a certain number of the things I pointed out are representative of the anti-China China's going to collapse position. Maybe the, I, I I think this article is just a bit hyperbolic because there's no way there's no way uh, you're going to point to y the youth unemployment of people who are still in high school as a metric for why the Chinese economy is failing there there's no way you come to that conclusion in a there's no way a sane and reasonable person is going to point to people who under normal circumstances probably aren't going to have a job because they're a high schooler in school a student not a college student, not a, a senior, no, a student. You're, they're like in the middle of high school, 16-year-old. 
and you're going to point to the unemployment rate among the lowest rung of the Chinese workforce, the 16-year-olds, as an example of why the Chinese economy is, oh my goodness, there's, there's no way. There's no way. I, I have to have just picked a bad article. I have to. I ha- I absolutely have to. There, there, <laughs> as I'm reading this to you now, I'm going, you know what? Maybe maybe these guys are just extreme. Maybe I'm strawmanning the shit out of these people. Or, or at least that's what I, I would say if I didn't see all the thumbnails. And, and then I see, yeah, yeah, you know, this is, this is definitely the things that they believe. Uh, and it's not just the thumbnails. I, I watch the videos ju- every now and then just to confirm that my suspicions are correct. Because wh- when you stop watching something after a, after a while, even if you came to the right conclusion, like, these guys aren't honest with me. And so I'm going to stop watching them because they're not honest. Well, after a certain period of time, that conclusion, which might have been correct in the beginning, starts to become an assumption where you assume that they are still not honest. So every now and then I like to check in on people and sources that I disagree with just to confirm the bias, just to confirm the bias. And if I'm wrong, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. But if I'm right, well, uh, at least I know I'm right and I'm just going to continue to uh, avoid that. Like I've I've done that with the mainstream, uh, the propaganda press since day one of the the Ukraine war. It has served me so unbelievably well. You would not believe, or maybe you would believe because you've been listening to me. <laughs> thank you to all my lovely listeners. I'll just take that moment to thank you for listening to me rant and ramble. But yeah, so I I try I try to interact with sources and people and opinions that I disagree with. Uh, sometimes for the sake of getting a, a different perspective. And other times, uh, just to confirm, sort of a, do a, an, an update on my opinion about a certain thing, it, is my criticism of them still valid? If it is, well, I'm going to continue to not watch them. And if it isn't, well, I guess I'll give them a shot every now and then. I'm, I'm currently booked. Uh, I can't squeeze in too much extra news. Like I, I, I can barely watch Tim Pool or... Um, Sticks Hexenhammer because I'm on, I'm loaded up on Jimmy Dore, uh, Danny Haifong, Jackson Hinkle, and the Duran and Steve Turley. Like I can only do so much. I, I can I, like I like my off time too, and I uh, and sometimes I just get burnt out listening to the news. But you know, uh, with this, I decided you know what maybe maybe maybe. Uh, I have misjudged them, and maybe I just need to read and see if they've come to some valid criticisms about the Chinese economy to justify uh, the claim. Because maybe this time China is collapsing. Maybe they, maybe this time is the one. You know, a broken clock is right twice, twice a day. Maybe this is that time. So, I read the article. I bit the bullet and I read the article. And well, my bias has been confirmed, and it's even crazier than I thought it would be. Like, I didn't expect it to be this bad. Like, I, I really didn't. You're going to point to the poorest part of the country <laughs> as a reason why the, the economic model doesn't work. You're going to point to the, low, the, the earliest point that people could potentially possibly even get a job in China. And you're going to point to the unemployment rate among those people who really aren't even trying to get a job right now. And you're going to point to them as, oh, look, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Look at how high the youth unemployment rate is. 
They're in school. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I can't stand <laughs> You're going to ignore all the the plus sides of the economic model, the economic miracle, like Shenzhen and the massive manufacturing base that China has built up. They are the largest economy in purchasing power parity terms, and they are bare minimum the second largest in nominal terms. You don't get there with a failed economic system. You don't get there with a failed economic system. So how do they come to this conclusion? Why do they do these things? Why would they do that? And the, the system has failed, they say. And that's the reason China's economy isn't growing. And then, and then they point it out themselves. People just aren't spending money like that because their savings were drained by years of harsh lockdowns. The lockdown policy is the reason for China's recession right now, or at least on the domestic side. You have recession around the world, and China's a major trading partner, so they're sort of importing recession from the rest of the world, and primarily from the West. So that's that's the the foreign aspect of China going into recession. But the domestic aspect is people just aren't buying shit. And, and you bury that in the middle of the article and then just gloss it over like it's it's not the root cause of this? Like, come on. Th- this is so bad. This is such a bad article. <laughs> but I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue. Uh, it's... Uh, I say I'll continue, but I, I literally wrote in my notes that I'm going to stop there after the 16th year. <laughs> so... The first thing I'll say here, since I'm, I'm reorganized my thoughts now, first thing I'll say is that this whole massive hubbub reminds me of the previous massive hubbub made about how China's economy was in major trouble with Evergreen. You remember that one? Evergreen, the, the real estate bubble, the massive real estate conglomerate in China. Uh, they, they were about to default on the payment. And it was going to bring down the whole Chinese economy, and China was going to collapse in in uh, forty eight hours. You remember that? <laughs> you you remember that? I I remember it, and I remember completely ignoring it because I knew it was some garbage. Because that wasn't the first time. You've had multiple um, little panics about the Chinese economy. For whatever reason, we're we're just obsessed about China collapsing. And for whatever reason, we think that China collapsing is a good thing. Because when you listen to these videos, it's like, oh, hey, China's collapsing. Oh, yeah. See, they they messed up here, 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 and here. And that's why their economy is going to fail. And they're going to collapse. And, blah, 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 blah. and it's it's such a arrogant. There's such arrogance coming from people uh, making these sorts of criticisms. And then they're never correct. And, very, and no one bothers to follow up with the retraction saying, you know what? China's economy hasn't collapsed. Not a single one that I've seen, and I've seen quite a few make these predictions. No one follows up and say, you know, uh, I was wrong about China's economy collapsing in 48 hours. All those thumbnails. No, no, no one made a retraction. No one said, you know, China's economy is, hey, China's economy is actually still kicking. Why is it still? And no one bothers to ask the question, why is it still going? I thought it was the end. How did I get it wrong? There's no self-reflection. There's only arrogance. And the continued assumption that your previous assumption, which was proven wrong, is going to be proven right if you just wait long enough. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's these hysterias. I don't understand them. Like, 
don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not necessarily endorsing China's model. I don't want it. We have our own thing, the American system. And I, I'm still reconciling my, my hostility to the Fed with the American system's advocation for a national bank. And uh, no, I'll, I'll eventually figure it out. No. I'm, I'm leaning towards, I guess, I guess a national bank would controlled by the government because someone has to print the money. I guess, I guess. I defer to the American system. I defer to the founding fathers. Those, those niggas were genius. Collectively, they were genius. I defer to them. But yeah, I, I'm not even endorsing China's economic model. But don't lie to me. Like, I do believe it's fair to say that China's economy is either in or is headed for a recession. That's reasonable. Their growth rates are slowing down. Demand is depressed because of the lockdowns. And they're a major trading uh, power. And the rest of the world, primarily the West and even us here in the United States, is going into recession too. That means lower demand overseas for Chinese goods, which is eventually going to sort of import a recession into China. I think it's fair to say that they're going into or they're already in a recession. But again, so is everyone else. Germany is in recession. Britain's in recession. France. Uh, the, it, the, the EU. The United States. We're all going into recession. And in the case of US, Germany, Britain, we're already in recession. You, you see these prices going up. You see the cost of living going up. And you see nothing getting better. You, you can see the pre, uh, production going down. You can see consumption going a little down. You see, I mean, I mean, in the United States, we had like three bank failures, straight up bank failures of a lot of these regional banks. If that's not the signs of a recession, I don't know what it is. So we're all going into recession. So to sit here and mock and deride China's entire economic model because they have us one recession at the same time as everyone else is, is crazy. There's no justification for doing that. And it's dishonest. And it's, yeah, it's, it's dishonest. It's just really dishonest and not informative. Nobody benefited from this article. <laughs> and nobody benefits from this narrative that China's just going to collapse in uh, 24, 48, 72 hours, 76 hours. Or is it 72? 72. No one benefits from this. It's just—it's literally just not true. So why report it? Why go on with this thing that isn't true? People let their biases take them to places instead of letting the facts do that. And, and that—and that being said, why is this supposed to be a good thing? Why are we, why are we looking down our nose at China for the, for the economic model because they had a recession when everyone else is in recession? How is this a good thing? How is this? How is this something worth sneering and snickering at China over? Like, what do we gain from China going into recession? To to warrant the the attitude, you you heard the the tone throughout this article, and this is a tone you'll see repeated not just in our other articles but in the similar videos on this topic. And they'll speak from this in either either that tone or the the informative. Oh, I'm just giving it to you the the straight facts. China's going down, and, and then there's no retraction when they're wrong. 
how is any of this a good thing? Because people, they, they, you have these people in the United States, primarily on the conservative side, who sort of celebrate it, sort of passively, they celebrate it. It's like, how oh, it's a good thing. Why is this worth our time to obsess over? It's And it's not like they're obsessing over it and, and oh no, China's economy is going to collapse. It's a, oh look, China's economy is going to collapse. Uh, how is... What does this do for us? It doesn't do anything for us. I mean, China is one of our largest trading partners, our third, if I'm not mistaken, for the United States. And they are the largest trading partner for dozens of countries around the world, including, but not limited to, Russia, Brazil, Australia, Japan, and South Korea. Those are heavy hitters economically. So if they are the largest trading partner of these massive economies, especially the Russians, in the Japanese, if China is going into recession, well, that's going to drag all these countries down with them. And these are some really big economies. So if China goes into recession, these guys go into recession. Now you're talking about recession just uh, being a chain reaction of recession moving across the planet. How does China go into recession uh, warrant snickering and berating at China and, and acting as though we had it figured out when we're in a recession our damn selves. It's, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. And again, maybe it's, maybe it's cause my own personal political developments have led me down such a, a, a different path from the mainstream. And this isn't me patting me on my, on my back. Although I will say that I have come across, I've rediscovered the one true ideology and everything else is fake, phony and false. But I don't understand. Why do we have to be this way for something that really doesn't matter to us in in that way? Like China going down is bad for us. So why do we why do we get all obsessive and slightly celebrative whenever China's economy whenever we get the rumor that China's economy is about to go, crash and go down? Why why do you get these people going? Oh yeah, China's economy is they're they're going down. They're not going to be a competitor to the United States. They they have the demographic issues. They're going to fade away. Why why do we want them to fade away? <laughs> they're, they're the third largest trading partner. They're the they're the manufacturing center of the world. Why do you want them to fade away? How does that benefit anybody? It's it's crazy. The things people will say when they follow this China bad narrative. And. And if China's economy is running out of steam, then again, that will very quickly translate to the entire world running out of steam as well. What do you think happens when the manufacturing powerhouse of the planet has a recession? If they, ca when China sneezes, the rest of us catch a cold. That's how this goes. And, and lastly, recessions happen to everyone. Now, the fact that we're in a recession just really doesn't help the case for people, uh, hyping up the downfall of China, the fact that we too are in a recession here. So does that invalidate our entire economic model as well? Uh, to which I'd say, well, what economic model? <laughs> but does that invalidate us? Uh, 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 Arkansas is a very poor place. Does that invalidate the entire U U.S. economic model? Uh, no. Now, do I want the, the current economic model? No. I don't. I want my manufacturing base back. But let's not go, go jumping to these radical conclusions over such flimsy 
quote unquote evidence. There's no evidence to support the, the claim that China's system is failing and that's the reason for the recession when you point out later on that it's consumer, it's the consumers who lost a lot of their savings during the lockdowns. The lockdowns are the reason for the recession or at least the root cause in that in combination with recession in the West. And to blame uh, these infrastructure problems, look, look at the look at one of the poorest provinces in China and see how they're not growing in the same at the same rate as everyone else. This poor agrarian part of China isn't growing as fast as everyone else. So therefore, China's uh, system has failed. Look at the youth unemployment of people who are still in high school. China's economy is failing. It's 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 so dishonest. It's so dishonest, and nothing is gained from pushing this narrative. I mean, and they they talk about how China's are they have all this debt from these infrastructure projects. We have thirty one trillion dollars of debt and climbing fast, and not a high speed rail to our name. A third of all the dollars today were printed from twenty twenty onwards, and we have nothing to show for it. So when the crash does come, and it will come for us all. The Chinese will at least have the things that they have built. While we, on the other hand, will be left with just the memories of all the many things we have destroyed. Uh, Ukraine will be among the list. Perhaps Taiwan as well. We'll see. But it's... I'll end it by saying that looking at America can go a long way. It really can. Hyping up the inevitable decline and collapse of China does literally nothing for us or our people, the American citizen. However, focusing on ourselves can, and I believe will, do us many wonders. And that's the, that's the real solution to, to our problems, and that's the real way forward. Not to go find the enemy, uh, quite frankly, the enemy is our own government, we don't need to go fight a war with China. We don't need China's economy to collapse and cave in on itself. We don't need Russia to collapse. We don't need other countries to be destroyed. We just need to solve our own problems. And that's the solution. So the, the biggest and best takeaway from the these hype, from the, the, the anti-China hype, is that the anti-China hype does literally nothing for you and that we're better off focusing on our own country. China became the largest manufacturing power on the planet and the largest economy on the planet by focusing on themselves. So, and, and that's during a period of time when we were exporting our manufacturing base. So what do you think would happen if we focused on ourselves? I think great things would happen. And then we would live in peace. Uh, yeah. Now tell me I'm wrong. I don't think so. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Uh, the anti-China hype is strong. The war drums are strong. But regardless of how things change, we will have fun watching those changes together. Now, I've been your host, Kaishan Wade, and you have been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.